All right, good morning. And you guys quieted right down. It's awesome. Um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us. Let's just dive on in, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we just give you this time right now. Lord, I ask that you would just quiet our hearts. It's been a great morning already, Lord. I, I just love what Greg said about worship and just coming before you and getting to sing out. God, I pray that this time right now would just be an extension of that worship. We, we've given our offerings. We've given you praise. I pray that right now we can give you our hearts. Um, I pray that we can give you our minds and that you would speak to us in a way that, um, that changes us from within. God, I don't know where everybody's coming from this morning. I don't know what's gone on in their weeks. I know what's gone on in mine. And I know that coming in on a Sunday morning, there's a lot going on. And so I pray that right now, you would just be in this time, that your spirit would boldly meet us right where we are and to convict us and to show us what you need to show us. God, give me clarity. Give me the words to speak, Father, that it would not be me, but it would be your word. And uh, God, we want to give you this time. We want to give you this glory because you deserve it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, some of you may not know this. Some of you probably have heard this, but um, people in the Northeast actually have a little bit of a reputation. Um, some of it's good. Um, and so when Carrie and I were moving here, everybody warned us. They said, when you get to the Northeast, when you get over to that part of the country, people are rude and they are mean and they are cold. And we were like, wow, okay, that sounds fun, you know? And uh, so, but we've gotten out here, and what I just want to tell you that that has not been our experience at all. Now, some of you are the exception, but most of you, most all of you, right, it's been great. It's been really, really wonderful. Everybody that we've met has been incredibly warm and welcoming and friendly, and it's been a really pleasant surprise in a lot of ways. And so, um, just to give you an example of this, uh, right before we, right after we closed on our house, before we moved in, I was over uh, at our house. I was getting ready to start some renovations, and I met my neighbor. Okay, his name's Anthony, and uh, I, I see him out in the yard, and so I go out and I meet him, and we start to t chat, and uh, then he gives me a tour of his home, and then he begins to introduce me to the neighbors around the neighborhood right then, and then he spends three hours with me renovating, demoing out my kitchen floor. Right? I just met him. Three hours, just right there. It blew me away. I had no idea that I was going to have it. Just pure grace. Right? It's beautiful. And not only that, but then right after that, as he's leaving, he's walking out my back door and he says, Hey, what are you going to do about your yard? I'm like, man, I have no idea what to do about my yard. I just got here. Like, I haven't moved in. He's like, you know, the grass is going to grow and the leaves are going to fall. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know how that works, but I don't have a mower and I haven't moved over here yet. This is just not on my radar right now. And he says, hey, you know what? I'll take care of it. And so for the past month now, he has been mowing my lawn and bagging my leaves every week. Kind of a sweet deal, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of great. But isn't that incredible? Like, it just blew me away that he would, he would just respond to me this way. And he kept saying, hey, it's just the neighborly thing to do. I'm like, man, I've had neighbors before. That's, this never happened, right? This never happened to me before. It was incredible. And obviously, I am so grateful to him, right? I mean, I'm grateful to him. I can't imagine. I mean, if he doesn't show up and do my lawn by this point, it's like a wildlife preserve, Okay, if he, my kids, if they'd gone out there, the leaves would be this high, I'd lose them, right? They're, they're only this tall. You know, if he doesn't do that, man, I'm in trouble. And so I am grateful to him, 
I'm so appreciative that he would do that. It's incredible to me. Now, here's the sad reality, though. All right, here's the sad reality. Given enough time, given enough time, I could eventually take that for granted. Right? I mean, just imagine this for a moment. Just given enough time, if he was to continue to do this for years on end, which would be great, all right? But he's not going to do that. But if he was, if you just imagine for a moment, if he was to continue to do that for years on end, eventually I would begin to expect it and I would take that for granted, right? Because that's how my heart is geared. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but years from now, that's where my heart would lead me. And suddenly, instead of being appreciative, if he misses a week, I'd be like, man, where was he? What happened? I thought he was going to mow my lawn. See, that's how our hearts are geared. Given enough time, we begin to take things for granted. And it's, we see this all around us, right? You get a new job. You appreciate it for a while. Man, this is great. I love the people I'm working with. I love how this is going and everything. And then given enough time, it becomes old hat. And then eventually, you start to see all the things that you don't appreciate it about it, right? And we see this in our relationships with our kids, with our parents. Probably most explicitly, we see this in our marriages, Right? And so there's this couple and they get married and they're, they're madly in love and they go on their honeymoon and everything seems great and they love each other. And then given enough time, what happens? They begin to take each other for granted. And then they wake up one day and they wonder, where has all the love gone? Right, so let me um, explain this real quickly. There is nothing, nothing that will suck the love out of relationship faster than taking somebody for granted. Right? Husbands, you want to kill that light in your wife's eye? You want to make her a shell of herself? Just take her for granted. Mission accomplished. Right? Ladies, you want to emasculate a man? You want to make him feel small and petty? Man, just take him for granted. That's all we have to do, and we're terribly good at it. Right? We, we can find the, the 99% of everything that they do, and we can ignore all of that, and then we can nail them for that one or two things that they never seem to get right. So let me explain to you just quickly how this might look. Um, this week, I, uh, I came home from a long day's work. I've been, I'm drained. I'm worn out from doing, from doing God's work all day because I'm a pastor. That's what I do. And um, so I come home, and I see my wife, Carrie, and I'm like, hey, what's for dinner? And she says, you know what? I don't have anything ready tonight. I haven't prepared anything. Okay, now I've got two different ways that I can respond at this point. The first is I can be like, what happened? I've been gone all day. I'm hungry. I come home and you haven't done anything. Like, what's up with that? Right? That's one way that I could respond, right? Now, the other way is to recognize that my wife has spent all day taking care of and keeping our two wildly energetic boys from killing each other or themselves. All right? They're four and 18 months, and the four-year-old recently pushed the 18-month-old down the stairs, okay? So I'm not kidding. She's keeping them alive, right? But she not only was doing that, she was also at the same time, get this, at the same time, she's unpacking a kitchen. All right, so just to give you an idea of that, she's not just unpacking the kitchen or just keeping them alive. She's doing it at the same time. In my world, that's on par with brain surgery, okay? I can do either of those equally poorly, as in not at all. All right? There's no way I can do brain surgery or take care of my kids and unpack a kitchen at the same time. And that's what she's been doing. Now, I can either reply and respond with, how can you not have dinner ready? Or I can say, let's get a pizza. And because I am not a complete fool, I went with the latter. Right? 
And you know that because I'm alive today, right? Not little pieces of me scattered over the tri-state area. Not that my wife is a raging psychopath. She's not, all right? I call her the Wolverine. Small but fierce, right? Okay? But this is what we do, right? We take that 99% and we ignore all of that and then we nail the other person for that one or two things that they never seem to get right. And it sucks the love and it sucks the romance right out of our relationships, right? Because no romantic evening ever started with the words, why didn't you take out the trash? What happened, right? That's never happened. No romantic evening has ever started with, man, the house is a wreck. What have you been doing all day? Right? It's never happened. See, we do this in our marriages and we do this in our relationships because there is this direct correlation. Okay, follow me here. There's this direct correlation between how much we appreciate and we value someone and how much we love them. It's directly connected. If I appreciate and I love and I value my wife, it just follows. I'm going to love her more deeply. And that's true how I treat my kids and my parents and my coworkers and my neighbors and my wife and also in my relationship with God. And so I come in on a Sunday morning. We come in on a Sunday morning and we get to sing and we get to praise him and we get to hear a message and we get to give our money and then we leave and somewhere during the week we start to wonder, man, is this, is this it? Is this all there is to the Christian life? I mean, where's the love? Where's, where's the passion? Where's that, that unfettered devotion to God? Where are the people who are selling everything that they have and giving it to the poor because they just love God that much? Where are those people? Where are the people who say, I'm going to leave my family and my friends. I'm going to go somewhere else to proclaim the kingdom because I just love God that much. Where are the people like David in the Psalms who are saying, God, I pant after you like a deer pants for water. Because if I don't get you, I'm going to die. Where are those people? Where's the love? Where are the people who, like Paul, say, man, I look at everything else in this life and it's garbage. It's trash because I just love Jesus that much. Man, compared to him, this is nothing because I love him like that. See, where's the love? Now, there may be some of you here this morning, I just want to encourage you. Man, that's you. You're, you're like, man, I love Jesus like that. I love God like that, that much. That kind of devotion, I just want to say, man, blessings on you. That's fantastic. Keep cultivating that. Share that with other people. All right? But for a lot of us, right, where's the love? And the reality is that somewhere along the line, we have taken God for granted. Maybe we've heard these stories too many times. Maybe we've heard the gospel message too many times. But somewhere along the line, we've taken him for granted and we don't appreciate him. And so the love is gone. It's gone cold. And so we take God for granted either because we've heard the stories too many times or, all right, and here's where it gets uncomfortable. You with me? Either because we've taken it for granted, because we've, we've just heard it too many times, we've become numb to the gospel, or because we've never really known his forgiveness to begin with. See, in fact, that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. That's, that's exactly where Jesus is going to take us. He's going to say, hey, you don't love me the way that you should. You're not loving me in the way that, that you're supposed to love me because I'm, I'm worthy of that. He says, you're not loving me like that. And maybe, just maybe, it's because you've never actually known my forgiveness. You've never actually known my grace. 
right? That's what Jesus is going to ask. Okay, remember, that's not me, all right? Just to be clear, because some of you are looking at me like, man, are you questioning my salvation? No, man, it's not me. It's Jesus. We're going to see this, all right? Jesus wants to know, okay, you don't love me the way that you should. You're wondering where the love is. Do you really know me? Or maybe you've just gotten really good at showing the part. And you can sing and you can do all that. And maybe you even like this idea of church, but you don't really know me. You've never experienced my grace, my forgiveness. All right, so that's where we're headed. Let's, let's look at this together. Uh, Luke chapter 7. I'll give you a second to turn there. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, we're going to put it up here, I hope. Maybe. Maybe. Hey, did you guys do that or did I? Okay, I'll let you do that. That's not working. Or I didn't turn it on or something. Fair enough. All right. Um, so let's look at this together, all right? Follow along. Luke chapter 7. This is a familiar story probably to some of you. Man, there's a lot going on here, so let's get into it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. All right, let's just stop there for a second because we need to unpack some of this, all right? So the Pharisees, right, the Pharisees, they're like the conservative religious movement within Judaism. Okay, they're the religious right of their day. And so they, they, they are the defenders of orthodoxy. And so they would see their job, if some other person started teaching, they would see their job as to go and to make sure that what they're teaching is legit. That it's okay. So they've heard of this guy, Jesus, right? He's getting a bit of a, of a reputation. And he's going around and he's preaching and he's teaching about the kingdom. And he's got this following now. And they're like, okay, we need to find out what this guy is about. We need to check him out. So they're going to, what better way? They're going to bring him over for dinner and they're going to grill him. They're going to find out if he's okay. All right, so they bring him over and they bring him over to this dinner party. So it's the Pharisee, but he's probably got some friends there, maybe some other Pharisees, and they're going to investigate and see who Jesus really is. And they're going to find out if, if maybe, just maybe, there's more to him than what people think. Now, um, in our context, if you go to a dinner party at my house, I have a fairly set guest list, right? And there's rarely a time, in fact, I can't think of a time when someone just off the street just wandered into my house and started having dinner with us. That would be kind of awesome. But I, don't, I can't think of that ever happening. All right? But dinners, these kind of meals and banquets in the ancient Near East, they were quite a bit different. Okay? So they tend to be a little bit more public. All right? And so it was not uncommon for people to wander in off the street, uninvited guests, and they could actually mill about around the edges of the meal. And so they could do that. They can kind of hang out and they can listen to the conversation. They can hear what's going on. Maybe pick up some interesting bits of gossip. And if they're poor, they can also get scraps when the meal is over. Okay, so it's not that surprising. It's not that unusual then that this woman is there. That's not what's surprising. That's not what unusual. What, what is extremely surprising, in fact, what is blatantly offensive to the Pharisees and to uh, his friends, right, is what she does, right? Because what does she do? She comes over there and recognizes she has a reputation. She's a known sinner, so possibly she's a prostitute. She comes over, and in the middle of their meal, 
Can you imagine the nerve of this? In the middle of her meal, their meal, she's on her knees and she is washing his feet with her tears. And her hair, which should always be up in public, is down and she's washing his feet with her hair. And this perfume, that if she is a prostitute, is probably something she uses in her line of work. She now has it and she is massaging Jesus' feet with it. You get the picture? Scandalous, right? Scandalous. I mean, imagine you're at a dinner party and some woman comes in dressed like she's looking for a hot date. And then she pulls out some lotion and starts massaging one of your guest's feet. All right? A little uncomfortable? Just a little. Right? And Jesus does nothing. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't do anything. See, everybody else is offended. Man, this is, this is scandalous. I can't believe that she's doing that. And oh my goodness, he's letting her. Jesus, man, it's a dinner party. <laughs> That's not cool, man. I can't believe he's doing that. I mean, at the very least, he should be like, you know what? I really appreciate the gesture, but could you come back another time? You know, I mean, just something. That's what they're looking for. They're like, what's he going to do? How, he's gonna, how is he going to respond? He just lets her keep massaging his feet. And so what does it say? Verse 39, right? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. Who is touching him for she is a sinner. You see what he says? He's already made his judgment. He wanted to check Jesus out. He wanted to see what kind of a guy he was. And what has he determined already? Jesus is not a man of God. He's no prophet because no righteous man of God would ever, ever allow somebody like this near them. See, we still do that, right? <laughs> I'm a good Christian person. I don't hang out with those people. Man, I, I, I've got my act together, man. This is, this is who I am. This is how I'm doing my thing. And I'm a believer. And, and I don't hang out with people like that. But Jesus, man, his criteria is completely different. Right? But the Pharisee, he looks at this and says, Okay, this woman, she is unclean. She's a sinner. And there's no way that Jesus, if he is a man of God, would ever let her near him. And never, ever let, him touch, let her touch him like that. So here's what he does. He makes this judgment, right? He immediately knows. I already know she's a sinner. She's a sinner. Done. I've got her wrapped up. I know exactly who she is. She's a sinner. And Jesus, now I've got him pegged to. He's not a prophet. He's done for the night. Right? Mission accomplished. Everything is wrapped up beautifully. She's a sinner. He's no saint. He's no prophet. I can go home and sleep well. One of the most effective ways of avoiding our sin is when we can pinpoint it in somebody else. You tracking with me? One of the most effective ways that we can make sure that we avoid, that we never have to come face to face with our sin, we never have to deal with it, is as long as I can be focused on the sin of somebody else. Man, look at that guy. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like them, right? And so this is what we do. We have these, these lists, right, in our heads, whether they're conscious or we just kind of, you know, we're kind of aware of them somehow that, man, he, he's got an anger problem and she's a gossip and he's greedy and he, she's a bad mom and he's bad at business, right? Notice it doesn't even have to be real sins. It's whatever we need to make sure that everyone else is inferior to us and then we can go home and sleep well at night. 
Right? One of the most effective ways of never dealing with my sin is to make sure I am absolutely crystal clear on everybody else's failings. Right? So even now, right? Even now, probably some of us, some of you, right? I'm the one up here. So some of you um, are sitting there thinking, man, I know somebody who should really hear this. Right? And I know that because this is what I do. I hear Paul preach and I'm like, oh man, my buddy, he should so hear this message. That would be so good for him. Right? That's what we do. We move it away from us and on to other people. It's incredibly effective. But notice Jesus is not going to let the Pharisee or us get away with that. Can we go to the next slide? Thanks, Colleen. Sorry, I have no idea how this works. Okay, Um, verse 40. And Jesus answering. All right, stop right there real quick. What did the Pharisee say? Nothing. He didn't say anything. He was thinking in his mind. That's what it says right before that. He says says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know that this one was a sinner and so on. And now Jesus answers. I love the irony of this. Right, because the Pharisees just said, well, this guy's no prophet. And now Jesus, reading his mind... Whoops. Says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And, and he answers, say it, teacher. Bring it on. Dude has no idea who he's dealing with here. All right, so this is what Jesus says. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. All right, so a denarii was about um, an average day's labor for your average worker, okay? And so I'll let you guys do the math. I'm not great with math. All I understand is that 500 is quite a bit more than 50, Okay, I think it's about 10 times as much. I'm just guessing here, okay? Not good at math. All right, so one owed 500, the other owes 50. When they could not pay, he canceled their debt of both. Now, which of them will love them more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he's canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. All right, let's see if this works. Look at that. Let's keep going. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I, ent- I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, so this is what Jesus is saying to Simon. He says, okay, look, you're right. You're right. This woman, she's a sinner. You you got that one right. You, You pegged her. That's right. She is a sinner. No argument here. But do you see the way she loves me. Right? I mean, I come into your house, no water for my feet. She's bathing my feet with her tears. No oil for my head to kind of, you know, freshen me up a little bit, right? And she's been putting oil on my feet. You don't give me a kiss when I come in, right? Nothing weird going on there. This is a standard greeting. Some of you are European. You get this, all right? Standard, standard greeting, all right? I lived in Italy. I get this, all right? Um, he says, you don't give me that kiss, and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet this whole time. Are you, are you following this? All right? He says, Simon, you're right, but do you see how she loves me? Why? 
Why is her love so bold? It's because she realizes she knows that her debts have been forgiven and she knows the extent of her debt. Her love is bold. Her love is audacious because she realizes that her debt was great and it's been forgiven. Like, don't misunderstand verse 47 here. It says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. Okay, don't misunderstand that. That is not a causal clause. That's not a, she loved a lot and now I'm going to forgive her. That's an evidentiary clause, what we like to call it. Get a little technical here. That's an evidentiary clause. That means that she loves. Why? Because she's been forgiven. So the implication here is that that she has already heard Jesus' message of forgiveness. That's why she showed up that night to begin with. She already heard Jesus preaching the kingdom and preaching a message of grace. And so she has received that. She has already been forgiven. And now she comes. And in this outpouring of emotion, of, of just this mixture of grief and sorrow over her sin, but also rejoicing over the fact that she's been forgiven, now she pours out this love upon Christ. And Jesus says, her love is bold. It's audacious. It's intense. It's significant because she knew that the debt she owed was significant and it's been forgiven. But Simon, you, your love is small. It's small. Because you think that the debt you've been forgiven is small. Your your love for me is of no consequence. Because you think that your sin is of no consequence. The the only way that we're going to begin to love God more, the only way that we're going to begin to find that that passion and that devotion to God, the only way that's going to happen is if we start by admitting and owning up to our own sin. It means we've got to recognize the sin in our lives and we have to come face to face with it and we have to own up to it. We have to recognize it for as serious as it is. Sin is just like any other addiction. Right? It controls us and it overwhelms us and we like to deny it, but we have to drag it into the light. We have to say, this sin is an offense to a holy God and ultimately it will separate me from him forever. Sin is an offense to God and it ultimately it will destroy me and it will kill me. It's not cute, it's not cuddly, it's not exciting, it's not novel, it's not something I can control or dabble in. Right? It's not anything like that. Sin is a killer. And we are in its sights, we are its victims, and we have to take it and we have to own it. And we have to drag it into the light and so that God can deal with it. And the reason that that's so hard is because that means we have to admit to ourselves that we're not as great as we like to think we are. That means we have to admit to ourselves and to other people, we have to be honest, that we're not who we like to pretend that we are. We have to acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. And that might seem fairly obvious because we talk about that every week in here. But the reality is that for each one of us, there is this deep-seated belief, man, it's down in there somewhere, that somehow, some way, I can somehow make myself worth it. I can somehow tip the scales in my favor. So the God looks at me and he says, yeah, man, I see all those sins, but he's a pretty good guy. That's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. 
That's what I want to believe. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. This scale image is totally wrong. You know, because that's not the problem. The problem isn't the scale. The problem isn't the amount of sin. All right, it doesn't matter if we owe 50 or if we owe the 500. Either way, we're lost. Right? It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the amount of sin. All right, so this week um, at my house, we, uh, we've been unpacking a whole lot of boxes. And so my son Jude, he's my little one. He's 18 months old. He's about this tall. He, uh, he loves empty boxes, right? Little kids, they love empty boxes. He's been pushing one around. And so at some point, he comes to it. and I think he decides that he wants to get in it. That's my guess, all right? I'm, I'm trying to project myself into the mind of an 18-month-old. Not as hard as you might think. And um, so he comes up to this box, and he begins to reach in. Okay, it's an empty box. And he, he kind of tips over. All right, now, he doesn't fall in, but he also doesn't land back on his feet. He's perfectly perched on, in a V over the edge of the box. Just perfectly balanced. He's hilarious, all right? So he's just, like, hanging out right here. And his fingers are about this far off the ground, and his toes are about this far off the ground, totally stuck. All right? Now, is the problem how far he is from the ground? No. It doesn't matter whether he's this far or if he's a mile above the ground. It makes no difference. The problem is he's stuck on a box and he needs somebody to help him, which I eventually did after like a minute of watching him and laughing, right? What are you doing, buddy? Is that, is that working out for you? You know, he's like, ah, you know, he's like yelling at me. All right. Right? So there's, it doesn't matter though. It doesn't matter. You think, well, man, I'm this close to God. All right? It doesn't matter if you think you're this close to God or if you're a mile away from God. It makes no difference. That's not the problem. The problem is not whether you owe 50 or 500. That's not the problem. The problem is the sin itself. The problem is we're stuck. The problem is we're lost and we need somebody to come and get us off the box. Listen. The way to deal with our sin problem, listen to me, okay? The way to deal with our sin problem is never to try to minimize our sin. That's, that doesn't work. You can't deal with your sin problem by pretending that it's less than it is, by sugarcoating it and glossing over it. All that does is keeps us from getting the help that we need, right? That's like somebody coming to you and saying, you've got brain cancer, right? You get that diagnosis. The way you deal with that disease is not to say, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal, right? That's the wrong response. You don't go, man, you know, brain cancer, I'm sure a lot of people beat this. I'm sure it's no big deal. I'm not going to worry about it. No, all that does is keep you from going and getting the help that you need. It's the same with sin. The solution is never to say, my sin is no big deal, the solution is to say, my sin is a huge deal. It's a monumental problem. I have to own it. I have to face up to it. That doesn't mean I'm being owned by it. It doesn't mean that it defines me. It doesn't mean that I wallow in it. It means that I face it up to what it is and then I drag it into the light to let God deal with it. And when I do that, when I own up to it and then I go before a holy God and I say, this is my sin, forgive me, then I get to bask. And I get to revel in the beauty and the glory and the majesty of his grace. But see, if I don't own up to it, if I don't see it for as grave and as serious and as immense as it is, then I will never appreciate his grace. Man, when I own it, when I see it, and I am, I am broken by it, then I get to take it before a loving God. And I get to just 
get to soak it up, the light of his grace. It's like being in a cold movie theater and then stepping out into the sunlight of an afternoon. Man, it just warms you. That's the greatness of his grace. Now, we didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. He just gives it. See, that's what's so surprising about the story that Jesus tells, right? Because he tells the story about this money lender who then cancels debts. What kind of a money lender doesn't collect? Right? I mean, in Jesus' day, uh, this kind of debt was a huge problem, just like it is for us today. Right? We can appreciate this. Right? The debt is a huge problem. It is foundational, really, to how our society works. And so within our culture, within our society, for society to keep moving the way that it does... We have to pay our debts. And so a moneylender's job, this is his occupation, is to go and to collect the debts. Otherwise, he has no job. It doesn't work. Right? You pay your debts. The moneylender goes and makes sure that happens. What kind of a moneylender doesn't collect money? And Jesus says, I'm that kind of moneylender. I'm that kind of moneylender. I'm the kind of moneylender who cares more about the people who owe me than about what they owe me. In fact, he cared so much that he didn't just forgive the debt, right? It wasn't just sort of like, well, don't even worry about it. It's just going to disappear. It doesn't just vanish into thin air. No, no. Jesus, he actually goes and he pays the debt himself, right? This is what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? So in our sin, it, we have this debt to God and it's beyond anything that we can possibly pay. And so we have forfeited that debt. Right? And out of that, we have forfeited our lives. We've never paid it. We can't pay it. Therefore, we forfeit our lives and we are dead. But God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All right? He forgives all of it. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Christ takes all of our sin, he takes all of our debt, and he takes it with him to the cross. And as he is nailed to the cross, it's nailed there with him, and he pays it in full. And it's done. It's canceled. And when we begin to see and begin to recognize the enormity of my debt, the gravity of my sin, what it cost him, and noticing that he pays it at great personal cost, that it sacrifices, that it causes him to lose his life. And I'm filled with gratitude. And as my appreciation grows, as that infiltrates my heart, then my love grows. And there's boldness. There's a bold love. There's an audacious love. There's a passionate love. There's an unfettered devotion to God. Because look at my sin that he's forgiven. Look at my sin that he's forgiven. And I didn't do anything to deserve it. And I can just bask in his grace. Um, let, me, let me close with this. Um, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I am so in love with God. I am, I am passionate. I am all over that. Right? If that's you this morning, man, I, I have, I've never been more in love with God in my life and I'm sharing that with other people and I'm giving like I've never given. I'm thinking about who I can go praise God to, who I can go share the gospel with. Man, if that's you, great. That's fantastic. 
Seriously, I want to encourage you in that. I want to ask you, man, go and cultivate that, share that with other people, all right? But for the rest of us, those of us who are kind of wondering, okay, is this all there is? Where's the love? Where's that kind of passion? Then here's what we have to do, right? Whether, whether it's just because we've grown numb to the gospel, we've heard it too many times, or if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we've never really known God's grace. In either case, what we have to do is we have to go and we have to first confront our sin. We have to deal with it. We have to drag it into the light. We have to see it for what it is, and then we take it before a loving and holy God, and we receive his forgiveness and his grace. And then out of that, we'll begin to love the way that we're supposed to love. All right, so let me give you, try to paint a picture of this as clearly as I can. So that means this week, okay, maybe this afternoon if you've got some time, maybe this week, seriously, carve out some time because this is not a quick thing. And you go and you, you search the scriptures and you, you go before God in prayer and you say, God, show me my heart. Show me the sin that I'm glossing over, that I'm ignoring. And then you take whatever that is, whether it's pride or it's anger, it's, it's selfishness, it's, it's greed. Whatever that is, you take it and you look at it and you hold it up and you see how offensive that is to a holy God. But then you lay it at his feet and you receive his grace and you bask in it. You revel in it. And you pray through it and you meditate on it and you sing about it and you tell other people about it. And if that's not doing it, you do it all again, right? It's not a quick fix. It's not something we just do one time and we keep doing that over and over again. Here's my sin. God, forgive me. I can't believe that I would offend you with this. But thank you, God. Praise you, God, that you would forgive me of this. Man, I love you. Right? That's where that love comes from. That's where that love is going to grow in us. And we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. But we go, we're honest. We take it before God. And we'll love boldly and audaciously, just like this woman. Let's pray. God, um, God, it is not easy to to talk about your grace like this. It's not easy to talk about how we don't love you because, man, it's so convicting. Because all of us know that deep down in our hearts, we don't love you the way that we should. There's something that we're holding back. There's something that we don't want to let go of. There's some sin that we're not acknowledging and we don't want to admit to ourselves that we're not as perfect as we think. We want to believe somehow that we're good enough, that we're smart enough, and that, that people like us. But the truth is, God, that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, and it doesn't matter that other people like us because they're just sinners like us. That, God, we have to get right with you, and that means holding up our sin, acknowledging our sin, not to be beat down by it, not to be crushed by it, but to give it to you because your grace is sufficient. The only thing greater than my sin is your grace. God, I pray right now that there's anyone here who's just in the the midst of this time, Lord, is just wrestling with sin, seeing some of those areas in their own lives. Father, I pray that your grace would just envelop them. It would cover them like a warm blanket. They could just bask in your forgiveness and your grace. God, let us be people who love fervently, who love boldly, and are ready to follow you wherever you lead. God, that's what we ask. That's what we want. We give this time to you. Amen.